0: Well good morning everybody, welcome to another Thursday morning early edition. You guys are great being here, on time, ready to go, study my Bible, learn something new. By way of introduction, we got a lot of material we could do for an easy introduction into the material for today. We got an NCAA men's basketball championship we could talk about from last Monday. I've been to the Gospel Coalition Conference last week, tons of great stuff from that. Got to hear Sandy. Sandy did a great job speaking to 8,000 people, a lot lot to talk about, but uh, I think we need to dive right in because I want to tell us all that Holy Week is a very dangerous time, and you're not aware of it, most of you. You don't realize the danger that you are in. And the danger is that you can begin to think that because I'm coming to a 6.30 a.m. Bible study on a Thursday, I have a better chance of getting to heaven than the other slob who's sleeping in who's not doing this. And some of you you know, saying, well, I've been doing this for 10 years. And others go, 10? That's nothing. I've been doing this for 20 years. And so you think, well, that's not special during Holy Week. We do that every Thursday morning. That's true. That's true. But in Holy Week... If you really want to up the ante, you can come for lunch, and you can come at noon for a special service on a Thursday, and you can really be super spiritual. But the danger in Holy Week is, is that on Thursday, you can not only come at 6.30 in the morning and at noon, you can come tonight for a Monday Thursday service of worship, and it's very solemn and very uh, religious, and it will make you think, I am going to gain even more status with God by coming to that service tonight. Am I telling you not to come to that service tonight because it's dangerous? Don't come because you'll, you'll jump into that trap. Not at all. No, you, you come if you believe God wants you to come, and you come for the right reasons, but if you come for the wrong reasons, you might as well have given up the gospel. That was certainly a big message from the Gospel Coalition last week as we studied through the six chapters of Galatians, There is a grave danger in being super spiritual that I'm going to get all these brownie points for going to these extra services. I mean, a lot of people will come on Sunday morning to one service, but I'm going to add Sunday school for sure to that. And I'm going to add Thursday morning Amen Bible study to that. And during Holy Week, I'm going to be there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, leading up to a sunrise service on Easter I'm going to be super spiritual. I'm going to do all of that. And there's just a danger there. You can do all of that for the right reasons, and you will grow spiritually because of it. You can do all of that for the wrong reasons, and it will subtly affect your spiritual life because you are trying to be super spiritual. What do I mean by super spiritual? I mean that you have in your head that there are extra credit questions in the Christian life. There are ways that we can get. I know I messed up on questions 6 and 20 and 13 on the the test earlier, but I think if I can do this extra credit, I'll I'll overcome those. So I'm going to do some works that are above and beyond the call of duty. I'm going to do some works of supererogation, which is a word that I'm sure Sandy's used in here before, a word that was very important to the monks uh, from Well, really, from the fourth century on to the 16th century, when Luther came along, Luther was a monk. He thought that by doing works that ordinary people didn't do, that he would gain greater standing with God. He would do extra credit works, and Thursday morning at 6:30 Bible study—that's one of them—and then coming every day during Holy Week and just being really religious and really solemn and looking like I really am taking this all in. I just feel better. God's going to bless that business deal because I did all of that. God's going to give me a better grade on that test because I came Thursday night and didn't study as long as I could because I I came and I worshipped and that will somehow give me a better grade because God will love me more because I've done these things. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to say, I don't need something that God says you need, like sleep. I don't need sleep. Yeah, you do. Well, I don't need food, not as much as everybody else eats. I'm going to go without food. I'm going to be really strict on that. Now, why becomes the crucial question again. Why are you going without food? There may be a medically wise answer. There may be another wise answer, but there are lots of dangerous answers as to why you're thinking I'm going without food. I'm giving up X for Lent. You fill in the blank, and you think that by doing that, that you're going to gain extra standing with God. You're not. You're not. And we'll talk more about that at the very end. Now, why am I giving up something for Lent? Why am I doing these works of supererogation? Why am I looking for extra credit? Why am I thinking that I can go without? I don't need food. I don't need sleep. I don't need sex. I, sex is optional. I, I don't really need that. And so for my life, I'm going to take a vow of chastity. And I'm never going to marry, never going to have sex. And that'll put me way ahead of a lot of other guys my age, young guys that, that, made, that didn't make that claim. But I'm going to show I am completely devoted to Jesus. You think, well, really? Do you have to do that? I mean, I, and some of you may have struggled with that. You may have thought, yeah, well, better to marry than to burn. I think I better go ahead and marry, because I'm burning right now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can I get an amen there? Exactly. And you think, gosh, but that's not very spiritual. If I'm really spiritual, if I'd really been serious about the mission field or about being God's special man, a man of God, I would have stayed single, but instead I had to to get married. Now Now we really are sounding like monks who took these vows of poverty, I don't need money, chastity, I don't need sex, and obedience. I'll do whatever the Pope says. And it's dangerous because God didn't command you to do everything that the Pope says. God didn't command you to go without sex. In fact, he said it's not good for the man to be alone. And God didn't command you to go without any money. He said, no, provide for your own needs and do enough work that you can provide not only for your own needs but for the needs of others and you have something to share with others in Ephesians 4. So where are we getting our cues for doing without all of these things that... We think, I don't need. Other people may need, but I don't need. There's a danger in being super spiritual. And we just fell right into it when we sang our opening hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our griefs and sins to bear. You know, that's really true. I don't need friends. I got Jesus. Jesus and I are tight. If I can just get alone with Jesus, I can weather anything before me, and I don't need any friends. But it was God who said, it is not good for the human being to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. And that same God then acknowledged that friends would be one of his gifts to all of humanity by common grace. Just as he makes the sun shine on the just and the unjust and the rains to fall on the fields of the sinner as well as on the fields of the righteous, so also he gives this wonderful gift of friendship to all of humanity. But many of us don't take advantage of it, and we don't really grab onto it because we think we're super spiritual and we don't need it. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 says, chapter 4, verse 9 says, Two are better than one, for they have a good reward for their labor. For if one falls down, the other can lift him up. But woe to the man who is alone when he falls, for he does not have anyone else to lift him up. The introduction this morning is pretty simple. We need friends. God says we need friends. For us to say we don't need friends, Jesus is just enough, you know, for me to have a relationship with you and I don't need other friends, is to run that danger of becoming super spiritual and denying ourselves in an area that God didn't intend for us to deny ourselves in. And the greater danger is the danger to men, not to women. Cuz women don't tend to deny themselves in that area as much. They are glad for their friends, and they want their friends, and they will process with their friends. They'll share life with their friends. And if I've got to sew, I'm going to sew with a friend. If I've got to make a quilt, I'm going to make a quilt with a friend. If I've got to bake a whole bunch of stuff, I'm going to bake with my friend. I'm do, we're going to do life together somehow. Whereas men, the rugged individualists, will find a way to do it by myself because I, I don't need anybody else to help me with it, and I don't want anybody else to mess it up. There's a danger in being super spiritual, even when it comes to something as simple as friendship. In Daniel chapter 1, we see Daniel, this great hero of the faith, interacting a little bit with his friends. We find out he had friends. He went through life with friends. So we can learn some things about friends from watching Daniel in Daniel chapter 1. But that's not the main message of Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 1, we will find a message that is incredibly relevant to Holy Week and really to any time, but especially to Holy Week. And it's a message that I know I need desperately, and so I'm happy to speak on it this morning just because I know how much I need it and I trust that you need it too. So, let's dive in and look at uh, some principles about friends that we'll gain right from um, Daniel chapter 1. First point. And that is from uh, these first verses, first section. Um, is going to be verses 1 through 7. Friends come from proximity. Friends come from proximity. They are close by. Don't neglect your father's friend um, in your time of need, for a neighbor who is nearby is better than a brother far away. That's Proverbs 27.10. A neighbor nearby is better than um, a brother who is far away. You need somebody close. You need somebody nearby to help you in your time of need. And that is where we find our friends. Generally speaking, research shows, and this isn't biblical, again, this is common grace. Research and social psychology shows that most of us find our friends from the people that we hang around with. Your friends tend to be in your neighborhood or at your workplace or in the club that you're part of, or they play you. The people that you play golf with, those are the people you're going to be friends with because you spend a lot of time with them. The people you hunt with, you tend to be friends with because I spend time with them, and it's that proximity that produces the friendship. So Daniel has these friends really not because of any big thing that he did necessarily, but because they grew up in the same town. Probably they grew up in Jerusalem together. They definitely grew up in Judah, and because they grew up in Judah and in Jerusalem, they just were thrown together a lot, particularly since they were all from either the royal family or one of the noble families. And we get that just from reading this introduction to Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. It seems to us on first reading that the main actor in this first chapter, certainly the first seven verses of Daniel, is Nebuchadnezzar, this great king who took over the entire known world at his time, threw off uh, his predecessors, uh, the Assyrians, and he established Babylonian hegemony in the ancient Near Eastern world. So, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, he besieged it, he brought home to to his own land to the house of his God, vessels from the house of the God of Israel. He placed the vessels in the treasury. He did this, did this, did this. Nebuchadnezzar made things happen. So we read first here of Nebuchadnezzar's plunder, the things that he was able to grab out of that temple that he conquered in Jerusalem. He didn't burn it to the ground. He just conquered it. Now, maybe this is a little bit helpful background to you. I hope so. There was not just one Babylonian deportation Everybody in Israel didn't go off to Babylon one time and that's all. There were three different stages of that deportation and it got worse and worse as time went by. In 605 B.C., the incident that's being talked about here, that's the first of the deportations. Jerusalem's uh, defenses were breached. Nebuchadnezzar conquered it. Nebuchadnezzar left it intact. He left a king on the throne. He, uh, He left things in pretty good order. But he took some vessels out of the house of God, some gold things, the big shiny things that he was prone to. He took those with him. And then we'll also see he took some people with him. And you see that in verses 3 and 4. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans." So he didn't just bring plunder, a little bit of plunder, he didn't plunder the whole city, but he brought some gold and shiny objects from the temple. He put them in his temple of his God. And then he also brought some people with him, some sharp people. I mean, these are good looking guys. These are guys who are probably ahead of their class in the Royal Academy in Jerusalem. And so I'm going to take them, and I'm going to make them servants of my empire in Babylon. And so I'm going to put them through my own program. And that's what we read about next in these verses. Nebuchadnezzar's program, verse 5 through verse 7. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So these friends are all thrown together in this one city of Jerusalem, in this one region of Judah, and then they are picked out of all the people there there are a relatively small number that are going into captivity. They're all about the same age. They're all about the same ability level. It's not like he took the bottom of the class and the top of the class. No, Nebuchadnezzar took the cream of the crop. And so they all had some similarities. They had some things in common. Their socioeconomic background was in common. Their intelligence level was in common. Their athletic ability was pretty much in common. They're, they were good looking guys. They were sharp. So they probably had known each other, and, and they were all thrown together. And because of that, as they go off into this experience together, they tend to be friends because research shows, and Daniel's experience shows, that friends come from proximity, from just being around. Now, I tell you, this is the first of three. Let's just get that out of the way with quickly. 605, Nebuchadnezzar makes his first conquest of Jerusalem, and he takes just a few of the youths of the town into captivity to be trained in his own royal academy. In 597 B.C., roughly 10 years later, there is a second deportation. This time, um, we find that uh, there are a bunch more people that are taken. And again, he doesn't take the lowest people of the land. He takes the people that are skilled because it will weaken uh, the city of Jerusalem and the region of the kingdom of Judah because some of their key people have been taken out, and it will strengthen his own kingdom. So among the people that he took were Ezekiel, the prophet, who was also of noble uh, lineage, and, and a number of others. And so this second deportation weakens Judah even more significantly. Uh, Jehoiachin is the last of the, um, well, he's the son of Jehoiakim, and he goes into exile also. But Nebuchadnezzar still leaves a king on the throne, King Zedekiah, who is Jehoiachin's uncle. He still leaves people to work the land. He still leaves the city intact. But ten years later, in 586 B.C., he comes back and he destroys the city, destroys the walls, destroys the uh, temple, tears down all of the bricks and mortar and stones. He burns it all with fire and there's nothing left except just a junkyard, a, a heap of rubble is all that's left. Three deportations. If you want to just try to get your head around it you know, and cheat a little bit on the, on the dates, you could just say, in 606, in 596, and 586, holding on to 586 as the date for the destruction of Jerusalem, which is kind of a key date in Old Testament history. Three different deportations, and this is free of charge. This is extra credit. I'm all about extra credit today. There were three returns to the land as well. There was the main return to the land in 538, so that's 70 years later roughly, but and we won't talk about how that 70 is compute. Well, yeah, we will. I might as well. Um, how those 70 uh, years are computed, but when um, Cyrus defeated the Babylonians and the Persian king came in, he allowed them all to go home, all these conquered people, and he set up for their return. And so Zerubbabel, who was the royal heir to Jerusalem at that time, led a group back, including Joshua the high priest, and they went back and rebuilt the temple. And they finished that temple in 516 B.C., which you all can do your clever and quick math, recognize that if 586 B.C. is a key date for the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, 516 is a key date for the uh, re-completion of the temple, and that just happens to be 70 years apart. So that's one way you could calculate the 70 years. Another way you could calculate it is that you could go with the 606 date for the first deportation, And then you could tie that to the 536 date when the first group got back, and there you got 70 years as well. But um, so there are three uh, exiles and then three returns. First one under Zerubbabel and Joshua, second one a few years later under Ezra, and then a third one a few years after that with Nehemiah. Just Nehemiah and a few other people, not a large number of people came on that third return to the land. You know what's chilling to realize? out of all the people that were taken captive into Babylon, and then some ran off to Egypt as well, and some they scattered all over. Of the huge group of people, by the time of 70 years being passed, they had multiplied in multiple generations over there. Wouldn't you think that they would all just, as soon as they got the green light, they would all go back to Jerusalem. They would go back to Mount Zion. They would go back to the land of promise. But the sad reality is only a very small percentage of Jews went back. The others had settled down. They had acquired businesses. They had acquired fields. They were finding prosperity in those fields. They had done exactly what Jeremiah said to do. Pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city to which you have been taken. In Jeremiah 29, we've seen that verse a whole lot. That tells us a lot about how we are to engage with Memphis. This is the city where we are. We need to pray for its peace and its prosperity and work for it. And that's true. But don't work for it so much that you become absorbed in it and your values now are the values of this world system and not the values of God, the things that He cares about. So when it was time to make that 900-mile journey back across the Fertile Crescent to get from Babylon back over uh, to Jerusalem, very few people went because it was too risky. It was too hard, and they were comfortable in this new land. So what if we don't have a temple? So what if we can't make our sacrifices anymore? It's okay. We don't care that much about our sin. We're not going to follow God that zealously, and there's a real danger there. Friends come from proximity. That's the principle for friendship that we can find in these first seven verses. But even as we look through them, we see what seems to be this pagan king being the main actor in these verses, and he is dictating exactly what he wants to happen on his terms and at his time, and who can stand in his path, because he is the one who is sovereign. Everybody in the nations around Israel would have been assuming, well, we thought Israel's God was pretty big stuff. I mean, that's enabled them to conquer us in the past and all that. But I guess Nebuchadnezzar's God is even greater than the God of Israel because his God won. And so, wow, God, the God of Israel must not be all that we had thought earlier he might be. Huge shame for the God of Israel. And yet the God of Israel willingly took that on himself as he had told his people he would because they had... Let their hearts stray so far from Him. Yeah, you're going through all the outward motions of this temple worship, but you don't really love Me. You don't really care about Me. You're not really worshiping Me. So I tell you, unless you repent, I'm going to send an invasion here who's going to destroy you. Ah, he won't do that. Jeremiah 7, here's the refrain that they said The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, three times, the temple of the Lord, the temple. God will never allow his temple to be overrun by pagans because he didn't want it to seem like that he is not a God as strong as those guys. No, 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 we're safe here. God will never do that. And after warning, after warning, after warning, God finally pulled the trigger and did it. Even though his name was not hallowed through the event. No, his name was despised among the nations because he allowed his holy city to be trampled underfoot by an invading army. But he did it for the sake of his people for the sake of his holiness. So, for us, as we think about these early verses in Daniel 1, it's good to remember. When I get the opportunity to do what God has said and wants me to do, I'm going to do it. I want to do it right then. I want to do it. And I want to do it with some other people who also want to do it because I'm going to need them, because I'm going to be tempted to pull back. I'm going to be tempted to give up. I'm going to be. And I need some others around me who can pull me along, keep me from despair, keep me from... Coming. And that's what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did for one another. They kept, they kept them hanging in there. Well, <coughs> this uh, action takes a new stage in uh, verses 8 through 16. And now we're moving from friends, and I'm speculating a little bit, but you speculate right along with me, or you just the sermon. Do you think this is valid or not valid? They've gone from being friends acquaintances knew each other, now they've been pushed together into a much tighter space, their proximity is even greater, and they have added to proximity another key ingredient, so that good friends come from adversity. The adversity becomes clear in verse 8 when we begin that verse with an adversative. The adversative is this big but that occurs right there. And it's all of a sudden, boom, but Daniel resolved, he was not going to defile himself with a king's choice food, but Daniel. So all of a sudden there's a tension that's introduced by that word. In order to have an adversative, you have to have adversity. Just as Teddy Bridgewater found out, a quarterback who'd had a great year the year before, he got hurt this last year, didn't get to play at all, but his attitude was incredibly said, you know, my grandmother taught me, if you're going to have a testimony, you got to have a test. So you can't have a testimony without a test, you can't have a... Adversity without adversity, you get adversity and that's going to either bind you together or scatter you apart. And that's exactly what happens here with this adversity. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? You would endanger my head with the king. So Daniel, oh, I don't, uh, you're asking a lot from me, says this chief eunuch. And actually chief eunuch is a translation uh, that the ESV uses. The NIV says chief official it's not completely clear whether he was literally a eunuch or not. Obviously, there were a lot of king's officials in uh, Egypt, in Assyria, and all through these empires who were eunuchs because who do you want to be in charge of your harem but somebody who can't fool around in your harem? And so you made sure by making that person a eunuch or you found someone who was already a eunuch and could not uh, jeopardize your harem. So... It's possible he could have been a uh, a eunuch, but not necessarily. What we do know is that he was very capable. All of the education of this Royal Academy was entrusted to this chief official, this chief eunuch. And not only their intellectual preparation, but their physical preparation too. They had a strength and conditioning coach. They had a nutrition specialist on the staff. And they were making sure that this team could play with the best of them. Just a little bit of an aside there. The University of North Carolina did win the NCAA National Championship. Having just moved here from Chapel Hill, I thought I would make that clear to you all. I didn't know if you did. And while they were in Memphis for the South Regional, my wife did what she'll often do, which I just kind of shake my head sometimes. But she uh, she made brownies, and her distinctive brownies with the M&Ms pushed into the tops of them, and she took them down to the team at the Peabody so that they can enjoy those things, and gave them uh, to Eric Montrose, thinking that she was giving them to Tyler Hansbrough. She doesn't know one from the other, but anyway, she... She did give it to him, and sure enough, they got them. but you know what, they couldn't eat them until after the game, because the strength and conditioning coach absolutely forbade it. You know, you guys aren't eating that junk now, but then after they'd played for a few hours or anything, then, okay, you you can have those. Well, that's what this guy's doing. He's going, I gotta beef you guys up. I want you to look strong, and the nutrition expertise that was in play at this time was that you eat really rich, high caloric food, high caloric wine. Would you like to be in that training program? Yeah, sign me up. I mean, that sounds great. You know, we're going to eat like a king. You are going to eat like a king. But that was a problem. Why was that a problem? Well, commentators are divided as to why that was a problem. I think we can actually combine their answers, and I don't have a problem with combining that there's a both-and element to it. One set of commentators say, the problem is that they're going to eat all this choice food. They've got everything right from the king's own table. The king, this is a full scholarship. That you got to the Royal Academy, you're got, you're got it for athletics because of your physical prowess. You got it also for smarts. You're really intelligent, so you've made it. And because and one of the features of your scholarship is your room and your board are provided for you. You think, well, yeah, I'm a slave. Well, then don't then don't quibble with me here. Um, you, I guess that might carry over to college football or college basketball too. I'm a slave. I'm at their mercy all the time. But yeah, I do get. Uh, my room and board provided, but anyway. They got the room and board provided there, and it was good food. It wasn't just generic food. It was what the king ate himself. It was the best. They were royal dainties is the loan word from Persia that's used to describe this stuff. And Daniel had a problem with it. Why? First set of commentators say it's because it wasn't prepared in the way that was kosher, according to Leviticus 11 or Deuteronomy 14 that all of the dietary laws aren't being followed. The blood wasn't drained properly. There were animals that we're forbidden to eat, that they're eating. They eat pork over here in Babylon, and we were told not to eat pork in Judah and in Jerusalem and in Israel, so I I can't eat that stuff. And I can't eat horse, and you guys eat horses over here. That's just disgusting to me, so I I, I can't do that. So I'm not going to eat the the choice food of the king because it's been defiled by wrong kind of animals, Uh, wrong kind of uh, butchering practices, and so I can't eat that. And so because he was loyal to the Levitical dietary laws, Daniel had to resolve, I'm not going to defile myself. Other commentators say, yeah, but what about the wine? That doesn't really rule out wine. They drank wine in Jerusalem. Well, the wine was probably poured out to a pagan god. A libation was, and then the rest of the wine was distributed. And so it, too, was tainted by its association with pagan religion." maybe, but all of the food would have been tainted by that, so they would have just had to stop eating. Even the vegetables would have been offered to the gods of Babylon, so if you take it that far, you're just not going to eat or drink, you're going on a hunger strike, basically, and that's not what Daniel is doing. Now, Daniel is saying, I, I cannot defile myself, not ritually, second set of commentators, but morally. This food comes with strings attached. I get that. I know what it's like to eat the king's food and therefore I'm beholden to him. Therefore I've bought into his program. Therefore I've said, "Okay, king, I will follow you. I'll be loyal to you. I will stand in your service. In other words, I'll I'll serve you. I'll stand in your presence, meaning I'll be one of your officials." And I know where my daily bread comes from. Where? From the king. So who's your daddy, Daniel? Who's your daddy? You are Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. That's right. Don't ever forget it. You're a great kid, Daniel. Hey, let's go. It's a great day. And Daniel said, no, my daddy is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. You would never have been able to conquer Jerusalem had it not been in his plan. I don't understand it. I'm not privy to it. I just know that he is the one who gives me my daily bread, and I will serve him and him only, ultimately. And that's Daniel. So he's not going to defile himself morally by getting into the king's good graces and becoming dependent on this pagan king. He recognizes my dependence is from the Lord. And that's where I'm going to be true. I'm going to serve him, whatever may come to me on that account. So he does put the chief official in a really hard spot. The chief official likes Daniel. He likes his friends. I'd, I'd help you here. But if you guys start looking more, you're losing weight, you're not looking as healthy as these other guys your age that are going through the program, it's my head. He will cut off my head, and won't think twice about it. He's already cut off part of me that mattered a lot to me, and now my head, that's no big deal to him. He'll cut that off for sure, too. So, Daniel, you're really asking a lot here. And Daniel says, well, yeah, so do what you have to do with me. But I won't eat the food. I won't eat the food. Well, it's not just Daniel. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. It's also his friends. Verse 11. And Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Just test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the ewes who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. Give it the eye test, O Ashpenaz. So he listened to them in this matter. He tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So you see, the chief official is the one who's ultimately in charge here. Um, But it was also a lesser official who brought them their food um, all the time, and I'm looking for that. Uh, Well, there was another uh, official who brought it, and his silence to this plan was bought, in effect, by the fact that you get all the royal food. You, a lowly servant, can eat all the royal food. Just bring us the vegetables from your garden that guy thought that was a great deal. The chief eunuch's not about to expose himself in the plot, so the only thing that they had to go on, that the king has to go on, is just who's looking better? Man, look at those guys, they are buff, you know, they've got some serious muscle here, they've got, and so by eating the vegetable diet, to just keep themselves clear, I'm not taking your largesse, Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm not going to stop the dietary laws that I grew up with in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I know those and I'm going to stick with them, so I'm going to do this on God's terms, not on your terms. That's a great, great word. And yet he does it by still being kind, submissive to authority, recognizing God's hand in this imprisonment, and he maintains a good attitude with all that, and that is incredible. There are some of you here in this room, I'm betting, who have been to a Bill Gothard youth conflict seminar in Memphis, Tennessee, because I know it came here years and years ago, and it was the rage. It was the hot thing. The Gospel Coalition, are you kidding me? You want to go to the Institute for Youth Conflicts, for Resolving Youth Conflicts, and Bill Gothard, this guru youth guy who was here, and had this big red notebook, and he gave you all these principles on self-esteem, and on uh, the umbrella of authority, and fitting under authority, and and having a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men, all these principles that were, and it was great stuff. Now, I remember going, I went to Detroit, but I know it was here in Memphis because my wife's family went here and said it was really good. Well, then Bill Gothard got a little bit different as time went on, and, and I, I, I couldn't go with him on some of that pattern. He got a little bit too conservative, fight and fundy, legalistic, I might say. It was, it was just, you know, I, I parted company. But having parted company, I'm still forever grateful for this concept that he presented all those years ago. You're caught in, an opportun- in a situation where you're seemingly having to come out from under submission to authority, and it was God who said in Romans 13:1, be subject to the governing authorities. But I, I'm feeling the tension. I can't be subject to the governing authorities here because they're asking me to do something I'm not totally comfortable with, and it's a little awkward. Well, Bill Gothard said, then what you need to do is present a creative alternative. Make it clear, I submit to your authority. I acknowledge your authority. It comes from God. You are the person that I want to obey and to follow here. So I'm not bucking your authority. I'm not being a rebel. I'm not being a hard guy. I'm really trying to think of a way that can be a win-win for both of us. And I think I've found one. How about this? Don't make us eat just for 10 days. Just give us 10 days. And if at the end of that time we're not looking so good, we'll eat the stuff. But until then, let us just eat vegetables that you've provided or somebody's provided, not the king's provided, so that we can make it clear it is to the Lord that we look for our daily bread and we're not going to eat the stuff that is unclean for us. And Ashpenaz, the chief official, goes... Okay, I can do that. You've given me a way out. You've you've saved my head. I'll do that for 10 days, but 10 days only I'm going to give you this. And he came up with a creative alternative. Next time you find yourself in that tense, no-win situation where you feel like I'm caught between a rock and a hard place, I don't know what to do. I've got these conflicting absolutes that are killing me here. Look for the creative alternative. Hey, what about this? Lay it out in a way in which you can both submit to authority and maintain your ritual and your moral purity. And that's what Daniel did. What a great thing. What a great thing. Well, good friends come from adversity. question that may come up uh, for you, and you're thinking about this, did Daniel's friends share his convictions, and that's why they were such good friends, because they all shared common convictions and values. Or did Daniel's friends come around to his position because they were his friends? Like, oh, Daniel, come on now, you know we like you, but we're not going to do it. Come on, guys, you got to do this with me. You can't give up on um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy either. you got to hang in there. Oh, man, you're going to get us killed. You're going to get us thrown out of this situation. You're going to... This is not good. You know, we've got it pretty good. We're captives, but we're living high on the hog here. Come on, Daniel. And Daniel goes, guys, I'm not going to do it. Are you with me or are you not? And I'm not sure which way it was. Don't know. We're not told. But they did it together. And because they did it together, wow, they got tighter. They got even closer. Adversity had that way of bringing them together. How's that work in your own life experience? Were you in the military? Were we a platoon, a small platoon of guys that we became a band of brothers because we had each other's backs? One of us didn't make it home, but the rest of us did. And the rest of us are bound forever because we went through hell together. Or maybe it was a sports team on a much lighter scale, but you went through some hard times and you, you struggled through some adversity, but it, it bonded you, it bound you together. We became a band of brothers. And we weren't brothers, we were friends, but a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So, it has that effect. When adversity hits you, not in the past, in college or military or high school, no, when adversity hits you today, who's gonna carry you? Who's gonna hold you up through that? Yeah, I hope your wife will, hope your kids will, your grandchildren may, but you know what? We all need some others who are going to say, lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend, I'll help you carry on. For it won't be long till I'm going to need somebody to lean on. Or you've got a friend in me, or one of the other great friend songs that are out there. We need each other. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves talks about friendship, and he says this about friendship. Friendship is unnecessary like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself. God didn't need to create it, so it's unnecessary. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. Friendship has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things that gives value to survival. Be a friend, have a friend, and carry each other, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, be there for each other. I'm so grateful for the small groups many of you are in that are part of this that after, because you've been in that small group, you've been in proximity with each other over a year, 20 years, you will become closer friends. But best friends, we move from friends come through proximity, good friends come through adversity, best friends come through diversity. Now how do we see that? Let's look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And at the end of the time, the test, when the king had come out, no, the three years, the whole Royal Academy program, at the end of the time, the three years are up, The king had commanded that they should be brought in. The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. All of these four youths, so four, that's Daniel plus the other three. And why is it that I know the names of the other three in their Babylonian form and not in their Hebrew form? You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, yeah, we can all say that, but, oh yeah, what is it again? It's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, why would we forget that? I don't know the answer to that, but I guess it's because in chapter 3, when they go into the fiery furnace, it's those names that are used, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's what Nebuchadnezzar calls them. That's what, so we've got that burned into our memory of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it's those four, all four of them, all four of them um, were incredible. And the oral exams that the king conducted himself, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And therefore they stood before the king. Therefore they served the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. It's it's as though maybe what's going on here is that he's looking for royal advisors to help him know when it's propitious to go into battle and when it's not. And so he's looking for good counsel here that's going to get him through all of that. And so a lot of the Chaldeans, the magicians, were using all of these soothsaying methods in order to predict the future and that would help them give the king good advice. And so they became expert in reading the tea leaves, reading the signs, looking at the chicken gizzards, you know, looking at the stars. They studied the stars. Great extensiveness and they knew all of this. And Daniel and his friends didn't do all of that. They just had great wisdom of common grace again of God's general blessing on all of humanity. And so in addition to their understanding of the scriptures, they also understood the book of nature. And they understood some things about the heavens. They studied that with real interest. Like, wow, this is great. We get to study all of this Chaldean literature about how the stars move and we can plot their points and know about the lunar calendar. That's great. So they studied all of that. They studied literature. They studied all that. But the point was, when it came time to advise the king on a particular military operation or political decision, they gave an answer that actually helped. I'm betting that this oral exam went something like this. Nebuchadnezzar, by this time, has pretty good experience. And so he's looking back at his case study file, and he's going, okay, when we're getting ready to invade in Nineveh, and I'm down to this situation, and one group of advisors are telling me to do this, and one group of advisors are telling me to do this, what would you tell me to do based on what you've learned over your three years here? Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, uh, would all say, well, um, I, I think that under that circumstance, with that, I think you would do plan A. And then other guys would say, oh, I think plan B. I mean, I've kind of checked the chicken gizzards, and I've checked this, and the stars are lined up in such a way it would be propitious at that time to do plan B. And everyone's like, okay, that's good, that's good. You know what, I did plan B. We lost. And it wasn't until I came back around to plan A that we won. So check one for these guys. Okay, let me ask you this situation. And then he did another one, another case study, and another case study. And, yes, there's some hyperbole in this expression, ten times better. I'm not sure it was literally ten times better, but a lot better. And that expression is used frequently idiomatically in the Old Testament to say a lot better. So they were ten times better. They got it right more of the time because they followed general wisdom that God gave. And God helped them, you know, just have this great wisdom and how to apply it to specific circumstances with understanding. Nebuchadnezzar said, these guys are a lot better. So God not only passed the test of ten days for their physical well-being, but of three years for their oral exams. It all came down to that, and they passed with flying colors, and they went into the king's service. And we'll see more about that in a little bit. But here's my point about Daniel. All four of them had that great ability and understanding and and in wisdom. All four of them did great in the oral exams. But Daniel was singled out. I don't know if you even noticed it. In the second part of chapter 17, as for these four youths, that's the first part again, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Daniel had understanding in visions and dreams. That's above and beyond the call of duty. He can actually interpret dreams. He can actually tell Nebuchadnezzar, okay, here's the dream that you had, and here's what it means. Nobody could do that. And in chapter two, we're going to see Daniel's special ability there. But I think that Daniel ends up being best friends with these guys because he has a particular ability that they don't have, and they complement one another at that point. And just think, with your best friends, you share in common some skill, some expertise, some athletic ability, whatever your interests are, musical ability, there's something that you value. And these friends tend to share it for the most part. They're competent, capable people but your very best friends aren't exactly like you. They're not exact clones, so that you're not constantly competing against them to prove your own worth. You kind of can give up on that path and say, hey, I'm not nearly as good in this as you are. I think that's how David and Jonathan got to be such great friends, is because though they were both heroic, and they both loved God, and they both accomplished great victories, Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, David in 1 Samuel 17, that... Jonathan said, I'm just not a giant killer. You know, we don't know where Jonathan was when David came to take on Goliath, but he wasn't there. He wasn't taking him on. Why? I don't know. But Jonathan was very impressed when David did it and, and found success. And David was very impressed with Jonathan that he would give up all his prerogatives of being the next king to defer to David. And so you grew up in the palace. You grew, I didn't. grow. I grew up in watching sheep. Yeah, but... I got, I, you've got something I don't have, David, and I respect you deeply, and I want to be your good friend, and that's what we do with our wives often, you know. Opposites attract a little bit because we're trying to fill in some gaps that we are aware that we have, and so we find our soul mate, somebody who helps us in ways that we couldn't predict quite ourselves. That may or may not be exactly what's going on here with Daniel, but. There are three parts to this chapter, I can tell you that. And I think they move from being friends through proximity to good friends through adversity to best friends through diversity. I'll, I'll stick with that. But there's a danger as we close. And the danger is not from being super spiritual as it was when we began. The danger is from being super practical. When I was going through seminary, when I was in college before that even, the typical sermon or talk in a parachurch group would look at Old Testament, New Testament, didn't really matter, but you'd look at the passage and then you would come up with principles and some timeless principles, some transferable principles. So if we study Daniel chapter 1, you might look at, and here are then some ways that we can be like Daniel and resolve not to defile ourselves. So here's a principle, here's a principle, here's a principle. And that was the way I probably preached at the very beginning of my ministry, sometimes unwittingly. I was like, well, yeah, you got to make it relevant somehow, so let's be super practical and let's give a principle here. Here's where the danger is. Remember I said when we started this chapter that the hero or the subject, at least of all the verbs, is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar did this, he did this, he did this. It is true, almost. But I skipped verse 2, which you may have noticed, because verse 2 didn't fit my thesis. Let me read verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he besieged it, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, back to be in Nebuchadnezzar, but verse 2. No, God allowed it. God was still in sovereign control over his temple mount, over his royal city, over his chosen people, and he allowed them to be plundered as he had said he would, as he had warned them repeatedly that he would, and it happened, but only because he allowed it. Verse 9. I'll I'll read verse uh, 8 for you again. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, and therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. He never would have had that test if God hadn't given him favor in the eyes, if that guy hadn't liked him. That guy is, all right, all right, I'll do it. God gave him favor. God gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And then verse 17, and as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. The hero of this chapter is not Daniel. The hero of this chapter is God slash Jesus. Because Jesus said, All of the Old Testament scriptures speak about me. He is the one that is allowing the temple to be breached, He is the one that is allowing Jehoiakim to go into exile. He is the one that is allowing the vessels of the temple to be taken by Nebuchadnezzar. Apart from his permission it would never happen. King Jesus is on the throne. Not just the king, he's not just the hero of this chapter. He's the hero of the whole book of Daniel. And you can see that in 325 when they, the other three friends, and where's Daniel, we don't know, but for whatever reason, he's not there on the day of the test. He doesn't get thrown into the fiery furnace, but the other three do because they won't defile themselves and worship a false image that Nebuchadnezzar said, you've got to bow down to, I'm not going to do it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself watches the people that threw him into the fire die because it was so hot. And then he watches them walking around in there with a fourth who looks like a son of the gods. Three came out, the other one never came out. But there is a picture and a hint even there of the one who is the hero of the entire book of Daniel, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in chapter 7, verse 25, this vision of the ancient of days and the Son of Man who comes on the clouds to judge all of the nations. That Son of Man is our Lord Jesus Christ. He took that title for himself better than any other title. He is the hero. Not only of chapter 1, but of the entire book. He is the hero of your life and of my life. So in this chapter, though we could make it into a, hey, be like Daniel moment, we're not going to. We're going to make it trust in the Lord moment. Works of supererogation, forget it. You cannot save yourself. I can't save myself. We desperately need a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have one. What a friend we have in Jesus. Not to the exclusion of other friends, but because he is our great and our chiefest of all friends. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge your sovereign control over all things. You are king of kings and lord of lords. There is a throne in heaven and it is occupied. Now, Lord, we, your subjects would resolve to make ourselves true to you. but We know we cannot. We don't have the strength in our own resources. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom you gave to us along with your dear son, strengthen us to follow Jesus. Not because we're so great, but because you are so great. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.